Well, good morning. If, if you have not had a chance to attend Alpha, we encourage you to uh, sign up in the back. It is a great introduction if you are new to the Christian faith, and it is a great refresher if you've been a Christian a long time, and it hits a lot of basic foundational and important truths that I think will be a blessing to you. So come on out. It starts next week. Uh, the, like I said, there's a sign-up in the back. There'll, there'll be dinner at 5 o'clock. And then if you have kids, the kids' club is going on, so you don't have to be worried about what you're going to do with childcare or anything like that. So it'll be a great, a great time of learning. I know my wife and I were blessed when we had the opportunity to, to go through the course. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just some, some great teaching and a great discussion time and a fantastic opportunity to get to know folks in our church better uh, in a in a one-on-one um, type of a scenario. I also want to uh, just make mention, we had our voting uh, last week, and uh, we, finished, we finished our elections last week, and I just want to give you an update on that. Um, for our governing board, uh, Tim Sharp was elected to replace Larry Kleinhart. Um, we, we, with our system, our governance system, you have a four-year term, and Larry was coming off the board, and so Tim Sharp was elected to take his place, and we're grateful for his willingness to, to step in there and serve. And our trustees, we actually added a position because we, we had a tie in the voting, and we thought rather than try to have some kind of a runoff or a duel or something like that, well, we would um, just add another position because there's always work to be done in the church, and we had some, some great people. So uh, uh, Terry Jarstifer will be joining the board, um, Stacy Dysinger, and Anna Sharp. All three of those will be joining our trustees. And uh, next week, we want to make sure we're going to put in the bulletin a list of all of our board members and all of our trustees so that you have an idea of who uh, is serving and who you can talk to if you have some questions that are involving in some of those areas. Uh, in your bulletin also, there is a mention of the Ladies Nicaragua trip. They're going to be meeting today at 11, correct? They'll be meeting... Right at the end of Sunday school, they'll be meeting for a brief, uh, brief discussion about, about the trip and planning uh, for the future here. Will it be in the prayer room area there? Okay, yeah, just right in the prayer room, right out back here in the foyer. So if you're interested in, in learning some more about that and talking about that, um, 11 o'clock today. If you have your Bibles, please join me in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Title of today's sermon is Taking Aim at Sin. When I was a kid, one of the uh, most common sights that you would see in our backyard was four boys running around with BB guns, uh, blasting away at things. We were, uh, we were given very clear instructions from our, our dad, one of the most important um, gun, gun safety tips that you can follow is never, never aim at anything unless you intend to shoot it, or never aim at anything in, in, that you're not going to shoot at. And so we always had to be clear what, what we could and couldn't aim the gun at. And so there was always a very, a very distinct list. Uh, we, don't, we don't shoot towards the road, um, the house, uh, mom's bird feeders, and, of course, your siblings, which had to be reiterated from time to time. I still remember the BB that was embedded in my brother Joshua's shin, from a misplaced shot of mine, for which I was severely disciplined. When you're in the backyard shooting BB guns, it's not really a life and death situation. Usually, we were taking aim at uh, old pumpkins, uh, paper targets, uh, an occasional rabbit or two, but 
When you're in war, when you're faced in armed conflict, all of a sudden the things that you're aiming at become very important because usually the target is shooting back at you. And, and often taking aim at the right target could mean life or death for you if, if, your, if your aim is off or if you're aiming at the wrong thing. Well, in our spiritual lives, that which we level our sights upon is equally important, if not more important, because it can mean a difference between spiritual life or death. And today we want to talk about setting our sights, setting our, our crosshairs on sin. And there's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that talks about the importance and the seriousness that we need to have when it comes to doing battle against sin. When we take God's word flippantly, when we simply take his, his commands as suggestions or good ideas or things that are up for debate, we realize that we can get ourselves into a lot of hot water and the consequences can be devastating. And so if you have your notes, if you want to follow along by filling in blanks, we're going to throw the, the main points up on the screen but in 1 Samuel chapter 15, what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of read these verses as we go through the, the structure, the outline. And the first point, the first thought I had for us this morning is God's directive. And we find out what God wants of Saul, King Saul, here in verses 1 through 3. Remember, uh, the people had, had come out of Egypt and uh, things started off really well under Joshua as they're conquering the, the land of Canaan. And, and then things began to derail a little bit under the, in the book of Judges. As, not a little bit, a lot of bit. As people followed after other gods and began to be taken captive by other nations. And things were just not going real well because of their disregard for God's word. And so the people thought one of the great solutions would be to, to ask for a king. So that's what they did. They told Samuel they wanted a king, and, and God, Samuel went to God, and God said, just give them what they want. They'll regret it, but give them what they want. It's, it's okay. And so Saul was appointed king, and Saul seemed to be the right guy for the job, but it didn't take long before he derailed and began to make bad choices. And he had already made a couple of them, and, and God now is, uh, or we're going we're gonna to see from chapter 15, that he makes another serious mistake that's going to cost him his kingdom. Verses 1 through 3 tell us this. It says, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over this people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The command is very clear. He, he gives Saul some instruction. Now, this dates back, this, this command by God, this directive of God, dates all the way back to when Israel was coming up out of Egypt. They were coming up out of, they were coming up out of captivity. And they're on their way to Sinai, and the Israelites, it tells us in Deuteronomy 25, 18, they were faint and weary, and, and the Amalekites did not show them hospitality. The Amalekites were aggressive towards them. And so Exodus 17, 14 says uh, that God swears to Moses, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And so this became a command for Israel that took them 300 years to follow through on. In case we think that God is being overly harsh with the Amalekites, that God is being just a a little too tough on them, I read this. It says, It's precisely in God's vengeance that His people find comfort. Yahweh does not forget how His enemies have hated, trampled, and crushed His people. To hear, See, your God will come with vengeance, Isaiah 35.4, is to hear the good news of great joy. For that means God will put down and overthrow all who strangle and oppress His people. If He does not do that, what ultimate hope do we have? No vengeance on God's enemies means no deliverance for His people. The full gospel, the good news, in all its completeness, always proclaims both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance from our God. Isaiah 61.2 God's people enjoy His favor. His enemies receive His vengeance. Perhaps we don't understand this as we should, but God's suffering people always have. It's the bedrock of our prayers seen in Revelation 6. How vigilant He is to mark all who despise those under His shelter. Some people put a beware of dog sign on their house or their fence, but the sign on Yahweh's kingdom reads, Beware of my flock. Rulers and nations who tread it should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of His hand. And that's, that's the punishment that the Amalekites were finding themselves under. But by God's grace, they'd had 300 years to repent, to turn. But now God's, God's command to Saul is very clear that these people need to be blotted out. And not only for what they did to Israel 300 years prior, but you have to understand the wickedness of these Canaanite nations. There was child sacrifice, there were orgies, and there was constant uh, temptation to draw the Israelites into their idolatry and their wickedness and their human sacrifice. And God says, we need to rid the land of the Amalekites. The word is very clear. It's not hazy. It's not open to interpretation. We need to remember that when God gives us a command, it's not up to us to redefine it, to to put it in a way that makes us feel comfortable or, or easier. We need to take God at His word and be willing to be obedient to His word, even if it's difficult, unpopular, or uncomfortable. So God's directive was very clear. And unfortunately, then we see, secondly, Saul's disobedience. Saul's disobedience. Verses 7 through 9 tell us that Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good. And he would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. What went wrong here? (laughs) What went wrong here? We see in Saul's disobedience that he thought he knew better than God. It was essentially he was saying, God, I know what you've said, but I'm going to spare the king because... Because that's kind of what you do in battle. You, you, you let the kings live. And then, seriously, there's some good, good stuff here. There's some good livestock. And, 
and, and some, some wealth here that we could take in. We could make good use of this. See, this is essentially what sin is. You could boil it down to this. Me thinking I know better than God. That, that, that's what sin is. It's me choosing my own way rather than God's way. It's how it started in the garden and that's how it's been ever since. When I sin, I am deciding that my way is best. That, that's a simple way of defining sin. It's, we like to sugarcoat it. We like to frame it differently so it doesn't sound so, so like it's on me. But that's what it is. It's me thinking I know better than God, that I'm wiser than God. And that's what Saul did. On top of that, he listened to the people. It tells us later on in the passage uh, that, that the people were, were putting that bug in Saul's ear. Hey, we've got to save this and let's, let's not forget about this. We need to be so careful about this because others can lead us astray. We might have in our mind to do the right thing, but then someone says, well, did you ever think about it this way? And all of a sudden we're wandering off in another direction, willfully disobeying God's Word. Listen, listen. whenever somebody comes into your life that thinks they know better than God, don't listen. If someone, be it me, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, an enemy, a relative, whoever, if someone tries to get you to disregard God's Word, don't listen. Don't listen. Because your choices will ultimately fall on your shoulders. It's not somebody else's fault. But God wants you to follow through on His Word, and He wants you to do it thoroughly. See, Saul almost did what God asked. He did take up arms against the Amalekites. He rallied his troops and he said, let's go get them. And they did. They fought them. They defeated them and they destroyed, well, almost everything. And they killed almost everyone. Some of us are content with just almost doing what God asks. If you ask your son to go mow the lawn and say, I'd like the lawn mowed before I get home from work and you come home and the lawn is still uncut, and you say, son, was I unclear? Oh, oh no, no, I heard you, Dad. And I, I went out to the shed, and, and I, uh, I got the, the tractor out, and I, I started it up, and I, I, I checked the, the oil level, and I checked the gas. I needed a little gas, so I added the gas to it, and, and it was running smoothly. I even turned the blades on, and, and then, well, I, I, I put it back in the shed. I, I almost mowed the lawn, Dad. I came real close to doing it, uh, but I, I didn't quite get it done. You would have some words with your son. You would want to discuss <laughs> and probably immediately send him out, be it dark or not, <laughs> to go get the job done. Because almost doesn't cut it. And it's really, really important that we remember that when it comes to God's word. Almost obedience, half-hearted obedience is not doing what God says. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so Saul is about to realize that there's consequences for that. And so the third thought I want us to reflect on is Samuel's daring. All right, I was really working the D words this week, so you have to excuse me. I was on a, on a, a, a pastor's kick to try to make 
make this flow with D words here. So we have Samuel's daring. Verse 11 tells us that Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. See, God told, God told Samuel what happened. And Samuel was angry. He was, he was hurt and upset at the blatant disregard for God's word. You know, some of us get angry pretty easily about things. And uh, sometimes small things, sometimes really stupid things make us angry. But there is one thing that it's okay to get angry about. And that's disregard for God's word. And it says he, he just he wept all night long. The sin of Saul, the nation's leader, the, the guy who was supposed to be the model, the, the example for the people, the one that they were to look up to not only as a military and political leader, but as a spiritual leader. He had just blown off God's word and, and it broke Samuel's heart. I wonder the last time sin kept us awake all night. I wonder the last time that, that we wept over disregard for God's Word. In our own life, in the life of another believer, in the nation, I wonder when sin last broke our heart as it did Samuel's here. And it wasn't just Samuel, it was God who was brokenhearted over Samuel's sin. The first half of verse 11 says, where God's speaking to Samuel, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. That's God expressing his hurt and his sorrow over what Samuel has done. I don't believe this passage is telling us that somehow God wishes he had come up with a different plan. That God wanted a do-over. Because Scripture tells us over and over and over again that God accomplishes His will. In fact, uh, down in verse 29, he says, uh, or Samuel says of him, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It almost seems like this passage is saying two different things. That God had regret that he placed Saul as king, but then in verse 29 it says that God is not a God who regrets. One writer I thought said this well, this paradox that God does and doesn't have regret tends to split our minds. But a little further thought tells us that this God who both repents and does not repent is the only God we can serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 11 do we find a God who is worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. If we cannot comprehend, we can perhaps apprehend at least enough to adore. He goes on to say, we need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. What we have here is God, the God who does not change. We talked about that a couple months ago. Yet here he says, he's expressing his heartache at, at Saul's disobedience. And he says, he says, I'm, I'm so hurt. I, I regret that I've placed Saul here. 
We need to remember that God's not just up there watching His creation just uh, go about its daily business. That when we make sinful choices, it truly breaks the heart of God. God's not up there saying, I saw that coming, all right. Let's work through this and start another day. Sin breaks God's heart. The reason I, I labeled this point Samuel's dare because his passion over the truth and over doing what is right caused him to boldly go before Saul in a way that probably would have gotten anybody else killed. But, but Samuel didn't sit aside and say, well, I don't want to say something. He is the king after all. I don't want to push this. But he boldly goes to Saul in verse 14. He says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In verse 22, he goes on to say, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We need to realize that and, and join Samuel in his passion to do what's right and be willing to stand up to those who are, are disregarding God's word. If you know somebody who is in sin, especially a believer who knows better, the loving and the right thing to do is to come alongside them graciously and rebuke them. We're so afraid of what people are going to think. We're so afraid of hurting people's feelings that sometimes we ignore sin. Well, I know they're living together and they're not married, but, you know, we've got a long friendship and I don't want to destroy that. I know that they've, they've, they've not been to church in forever and they're, they're living in a way that's not, not pleasing to God, but, you know, I'll just, I'll just keep praying for them. That's good. But God tells us throughout His Word that sin needs to be dealt with, not just prayed for. And Samuel here is a man who boldly confronts Saul in, in a way that could have got him killed, but he did what he knew he had to do. And then fourthly, we see Saul's defense. When he's confronted with the truth, Saul makes up excuses. He backpedals. He does several things. First of all, he lies. Verse 13 um, when he first saw Samuel, before, uh, before Samuel rebuked him, uh, as Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Hey, Samuel, how's it going? Just so you know, I did everything you asked, everything God asked of me, I did it. He lied about it. And that's so often a response when we know we haven't done what is right, when we know we've disobeyed God sometimes we're tempted to lie. The second thing he did was he justified it. He justified it. Um, he said, as in, it says in verse 15, as he's explaining it to Samuel, he says, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. He's talking about the animals. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Just so you know, okay, we didn't obey exactly the way that God asked us to, but we, we had good motives. You see, we wanted to sacrifice. We save these animals for God, Samuel. <laughs> we justify. We find ways to explain our sin and our disobedience. And that's not right either. We don't lie about it. We don't find ways to justify it. And then thirdly, he blamed. Uh, verse 15, notice he says, they have brought, he's speaking about the people, they have brought the animals from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep 
It's their fault, Samuel. I just want you to know, it wasn't my idea. It's other people. And so if lying doesn't work, if justifying doesn't work, then sometimes trying to blame it. God, if, if, if I had a better, better spouse, I wouldn't get so angry all the time. If, if, if my kids just obeyed, I wouldn't be so frustrated. If my life would be a little smoother, I wouldn't be so stressed out all the time. If, if, I, if, I, if I didn't have so much happening, I wouldn't worry, God. You fill in the blank with what's going on in your life and, and sin that you find ways to justify. And ask yourself, am I, am I taking the blame for my own sinful choices or am I trying to find ways to pass it off onto someone else? And you see, the thing with sin is that a couple little steps in, you find that you can easily begin to take a few steps more and then a few steps more. And then a few steps more. Notice his wording in these verses. Verse 15 is an example of it. He does it a couple of times. But he says to Samuel, The Lord your God. See what's happened in Saul's life? His sin and his justifying and his rebellion has caused him to get to the point where God is not even his God anymore. Reminds me of of the... uh, of the book, J.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. And I don't know if you've read it or watched the movies, but there's a, there's a, a story, in, or part of the story in there where the, where the company is on their trip and they're traveling through the forest of Mirkwood and, and they've been warned by Gandalf and Bjorn not to stray away from the path. All you've got to do is stay on the path through the forest, but don't get off the path. Well, their rations and their spirits run low, and then they see some elves feasting in the distance off of the path into the woods, and they leave the path to follow the light of the elven party. Well, when they arrive, the elves disappear and reappear somewhere else, and before they know it, they're deeper and deeper in the, in the forest, and then when they finally stop to look around, the path can be nowhere to be found. And they're lost, and they're stuck, and they're in danger. And that's how sin is. Just a little choice here and a little decision there and a little justifying here and a little blaming there. And before we know it, we've totally walked off the path and we're talking about God as the Lord, your God, and not the Lord, my God. And that reminds me then that sin brings devastation. We see, fifthly, sin's devastation. And just for the sake of time, basically what happens in these verses is that that Samuel comes down and gives God's judgment and he basically tells them, tells him that God has now torn the kingdom from you and he's given it to another. And we're going to find out in the next chapter, chapter 16, that Samuel is commissioned to go find that other and that's David because Saul's done, essentially. He's got a few more years on the throne, but he's essentially done now. The kingdom was torn from his, his grasp and not only that, but Samuel walked away from him, and that was his, his final interaction with Saul as king. God's presence through the prophet, through his anointed prophet, was going to be no more. And we just need to be reminded that sin brings devastation. We think that it's an innocent choice. We think, oh, nobody's, no, this is just me here. I'm not hurting anybody. But sin always, always, always has ripple effects, whether you see it or not, always has ripple effects. You think no one's looking. You think that, 
that no one else knows. But every time, every time, sin brings devastation. There are sinful choices that while, yes, you can be forgiven for, they may tear families apart. They may bring physical pain and illness. They may disqualify you from ministry. They may rend churches apart. They may snuff out lives. They may impede our spiritual growth. They may embitter children. They may even turn unbelievers away from Jesus and bring untold ripple effects of devastation. Don't believe for one second there is such a thing as harmless sin. Saul saw that firsthand. And then lastly, we see Samuel's decision. Samuel then set the model for what, for the way that we need to handle sin, the way that we need to deal with sin in verses 32 and 33. See, remember, he had left King Agag alive. And God had said everybody needs to die, that you need to wipe out the nation, blot them out. And so Samuel says, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to take God's word seriously, Saul. And so he says, bring to me here Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Some... Some translations, the Hebrew is not clear there. Some of your translations will say, and Agag came trembling, he came afraid. That, that word can either mean cheerfully or afraid. Either, either Agag thought, I'm in, the, I'm in the clear now, I'm safe. Or he began to think, maybe I'm not so safe. And he started trembling a little bit. But the outcome is not vague or unclear. It says, Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I almost picked that as the title of the sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces. I, I heard a pastor preach a sermon with that title before. And, and we laugh because it, it sounds, I mean, the, the, the language of the text is so odd. Like, it's so in your face. It's, it doesn't mince words. It's not a G-rated verse. He says he hacked Agag to pieces. He doesn't just say he put him to death. The Hebrew says he hacked him to pieces before the Lord. And we say, oh my gosh, that's disgusting. That's awful. But what he wants to communicate in this passage, I believe, is how seriously we need to take God's word. Samuel is saying to Saul, this is what should have happened. And when we trifle with sin, when we allow it, the devastation and the consequences are so, so serious. And before all the people, he wanted to see that we take God's word seriously. We need to take swift and decisive action when sin rears its ugly head in our life. We can't dance around with it. We can't flirt with it. We can't daydream about it. We need to cut it off. We need to hack it to pieces. And so just by way of application... Because we're all dealing with sin on a daily basis. We're all tempted. We're all just a a day away from making a devastating choice like Saul did. I just want to leave us with a couple things as we close to give us some tangible way and and reminder on how to do this. First of all, we've got to know God's Word. 
Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sin gives us ammo. I mean, I'm sorry. God's word gives us ammo to take aim at sin. God's word gives us ammo to take aim at sin. Knowing the truth, knowing what God expects will help us stay on the path. See, God was so clear to Saul. This is what you're supposed to do. But for some reason, he disregarded it. We need to know God's word. We need to meditate on God's word. One of my, one of my commitments this year in my own personal life is to get back on trap, track with Scripture memorization. I have not been very faithful in doing that. And it's such an important spiritual discipline to hide God's word in our heart. Secondly, we need, to, we need to take God's side. We need to take God's side when it comes to understanding his word. Not only do we need to know it and have it tucked up here, but it, it needs to make our, its way down here to our hearts. And we need to agree with God's word and believe that what he says is wrong really is wrong. And that what he says will happen if we disobey really will happen. We need to take God's side. Don't be led astray by lies and deception. Oh, you could get away with it just this once. You can adjust it here just a little bit. It's okay. We need to know God's word and then take his side about what he says. And then thirdly, we need to remember sin's consequences. We need to remember sin's consequences. Sin leaves devastation in its wake. And if we... If we, if we forget that, which Satan loves for us to do, we will be much more tempted to jump in with both feet. There's a great, Proverbs 5 is a great reminder of the consequences of sin. Uh, um, King, um, King Solomon there is instructing and, and passing on instruction and letting his son know the, the, the problem with adultery and following after what he calls the wayward woman. And he lays out in verses 11 through 14 just the the devastating consequences of the choice that he would make, of the choice if he were to follow after in that sexual sin. And whether it be sexual sin or or any other sin, we need to always have at the forefront of our mind the lives that will be destroyed, the relationships that will be hurt, the walk with God that will be hindered. Fourthly, we need to remember that there's always a way out. There is always, always, always a way out. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is no sinful temptation you will face. Listen to me on this. There is no sinful temptation that you face where God does not provide the spiritual resources to do battle with it. The problem is, is that we don't often look to those spiritual resources. We are, we're so quick to throw up our arms in defeat. It's really hard. I give up. And God says, no. No, the, the resources are there. You, you can get out of this. You can turn back. There's always a way out. And then finally... I just want to remind you to delight in Jesus above all else. To delight in Jesus above all else. See, it's, it's one thing to run away from sin. But we need something to run to. Someone to run to. And it's Jesus Christ. And when we know his word and we believe his word, we'll realize that he is far better than anything that Satan is trying to tempt us with. 
that walking in communion with Him, being obedient to His Word and doing what is right, is always, 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 100% of the time, better than that. Not only do we need to run away from sin, but we need to remember to run to Jesus and replace Him with the paltry substitute that Satan's offering. So this morning, I just want to remind you, take aim at sin. Set your sights on Christ. This is what the gospel's for. Jesus came to die for our sin, to set us free. And whether you've been a Christian a long time or, or you're just a brand new Christian, we need the gospel every single day for God's forgiveness of sin and for God to strengthen us and, and set us on our way so that we can fight against the temptations that come against us. Take aim at sin. Take God's word seriously. Don't, don't let your guard down for even a moment. And by God's grace, by God's grace, we can live holy lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the reminder that we need from time to time of the gravity of sin and the devastation that ensues when we choose to disregard your commands. And God, we're all at different stages and different places right now in our walk with you. And some of us are just weighed down right now with guilt because we're thinking, oh, that's me. I have given over my life to this temptation. I am, I am shackled in this sin. And, and I've wandered off the path to the point where it's, it's kind of like a Lord your God situation. He doesn't feel like my God anymore. And Father, I pray for those people that you would help them to seek forgiveness and realize that, that the forgiveness is there. there. There may be consequences, but you are faithful and just to forgive. Maybe today be the day that they're, they get back on the path recovery and healing and holiness. And God, for those who are, who are just in the trenches doing battle against sin, may, may they take heart knowing that, that the, the, the warfare they're fighting is a, is a good one. The battle that they've, they've chosen is the right one and that they would, by your grace, be able to be faithful in their battle against sin. God, we, we ask for your grace because we need it each and every day. May we take sin seriously. May we take aim at sin, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.